Welcome to the Love and Light Live podcast, empowering crystal lovers to learn and experience the art of crystal healing. Get ready to listen in and follow your soul calling with crystals. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me for the Love and Light Live podcast brought to you by loveandlightschool.com. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and this podcast is the number one place for all things crystals. In today's show, I'm interviewing the wonderful, amazing Nicholas Pearson. Nicholas is a colleague who became a friend over the years. We first met many years back, I couldn't even tell you how long ago now, at a conference in Ohio. And we connected over our love of crystals and we have stayed in touch ever since. And I love Nicholas dearly as a person, just as an amazing human. Um, but I also deeply respect and admire him as a crystal worker, as someone who values not only the metaphysics of crystals, but also the science and can really dig into both of these things with equal passion. And I think that that's rare in the crystal world and something that I really admire. So in this interview today, Nicholas and I are chatting about the ethics of crystals, the ethics of mining crystals, acquiring crystals, buying, selling crystals, um, what it really means for a crystal to be ethically sourced. Because I think this is something that We see this label used a little bit too freely in the crystal world right now, this term ethical. And although I would absolutely be thrilled if all the crystals on the market could be ethical, um, the truth is that they can't. They can't all be. And, And Nicholas really breaks this down in a super clear example of what it would mean to have about as 100% close to an ethically sourced crystal as you can get. And it might surprise you (laughs) what might qualify as an ethically sourced crystal through that lens. Um, But we'll also be talking about our personal responsibility as consumers um, existing within a capitalist society, existing within the norms of capitalism and the tendency for exploitation of extraction, um, the roots that capitalism has tied into white supremacy. It is really um, a fascinating conversation, something that I hope will get you thinking about your crystals and minerals. And then we also kind of talk about the flip side, you know, why uh, there's a kind of a big spotlight on the ethics of crystals when they make up such a very small and predominantly secondary part of the mining industry as a whole. So this is quite a long interview and a truly important one. And because I really want you to listen to the whole thing, and this is a long episode, uh, this week I'll be skipping our Ask Me Anything and Trending This Week segments so that you can really focus in and listen to the conversation that Nicholas and I are having. So without any further delay... I'm going to turn it over to the interview that we recorded just yesterday and get started. Hello and welcome. I am thrilled to be chatting once again with the most 
amazing Nicholas Pearson, author of Crystal Basics, Crystal Healing for the Heart, so many other amazing, amazing works. Nicholas, thank you so much for being here today. It is my delight, my privilege, my pleasure. These are always my favorite conversations that I get to do. So thank you for having me back. Well, the reason we're chatting today, and this is going to be, a, I think, a pretty informal conversation, but you and I were talking on Instagram the other day about ethically sourced minerals, because this is something that I think in, in the collective mineral community has really come to the forefront of being of great importance. We want to make sure that we're buying and sourcing gems ethically um, as you know, consumers, as people who purchase crystals and or as business owners who are selling crystals, like both sides of that. And we were talking uh, about a number of things, right? We discussed like what actually makes something ethical. We talked about the use of ethical as kind of a buzzword. And, and we decided you, you throughout the great idea, like, let's have a conversation about this for the podcast and really just dig into it. So first and foremost, um, I want to ask you, for those who may not know, why would it be important for us to try and source our minerals ethically? You know, I think as, as people in the kind of conscious living sphere, however we might define that, the body, mind, spirit, the wellness, we, we care about the impact we put into the world, most of us at least. And there's an expression, if it isn't grown, it's mined. So everything, everything, period, has some relationship to a raw material that came from Mother Earth, whether we sowed those seeds ourselves or, you know, leveled a forest to get something that has grown or whether we are digging stuff out of the earth. Anywhere I look in my room around me, not just the rocks on every surface, but the surfaces themselves probably have some relationship to the mineral kingdom, whether it's the plastic drawers full of tumbled rocks or I mean, even, even the fibers in the carpet beneath me are petrochemicals. So we can't have an existence that doesn't, at least this stage in our development on earth, we can't have an existence that isn't impacted by mining and extraction. And as conscious consumers, my hope for myself, and I, I can only speak for my hope for me, is that the decisions I make will impact the earth as conscientiously and as least devastatingly as possible. I, I care about where rocks come from, not just because I care about rocks, but because I care about the people who get them out of the earth, the people who do the lapidary work, people who bring them to market. And it's such a complex conversation. There's no one way to define or identify an ethically sourced rock. And we just have to take the, the information we've got and make the best decision available for us. So before we get into what actually does define an ethically sourced mineral, I want to kind of echo what you were just saying about, you know, this, this goes so much deeper than just minerals. It really is about our existence in the world as modern humans, um, especially Western modern humans. This is something that we all have to, to the best of our ability, be conscious of the decisions that we make. It makes me think a lot about The Good Place. <laughs> yes. Honestly, you've ever seen that show. So yes. it makes me think a lot about The Good Place and that like things have gotten so complicated and complex in our world that every decision that we make 
has far-reaching repercussions and ramifications. So thinking of, um, you know, cheating in the almond milk, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much like that. You know, I think of that with, with myself in, you know, y- you do something as seemingly simple as purchasing blueberries at the grocery store, at the supermarket. If you do that without thinking about the migrant workers who are probably not paid fairly for that food you're consuming, if you think about um, organic versus conventional produce, if you think about the, the, all the minerals that it takes to create the devices that we're all communicating on, uh, watching this on, listening on, all of these things are, like you said, extracted from the earth, every little bit of it. And it, it, it kind of makes me think of, um, like Alan Watts has this whole talk on how us humans live in our, our, our ticky-tacky houses with our ticky-tacky things. And it, as much as sometimes we feel so separate from nature, from Mother Earth and from the world, we are a part of it. And everything we do is interconnected and interwoven. So with that, why is it that crystals in particular have kind of this bad reputation for being particularly harmful in some circles? Oh, gosh. Well, I think, I think a really prime example is the idea of like conflict gemstones and other conflict materials, because um, while this is a really horrific practice, and it is something that is ongoing and there is vast corruption. And for anyone who, who might not be aware of what the term conflict stone or conflict gem means, these are these are materials that are bought and sold in areas that are rife with human conflict, often at the expense of human lives or through the endangerment of human lives. Uh, miners in places who, who do the digging for these diamonds risk life and limb in a quite a literal sense. Uh, over, over, you know, misplacing a stone, let alone taking one with them intentionally. So you've got these sorts of horrific human practices, social practices that are then in turn fueling things like the sale of those gems might be encouraging the, the buying of firearms and munitions and other agents of war. And um, the conventional jewelry trade has begun to establish guidelines for navigating your way through that. You can buy certified conflict-free gemstones, certainly not every rock out there, but the, the real truth behind, you know, this example in particular that I think is going to hold true for the rest of rocks and minerals that we'll talk about is you genuinely just can't know the entire provenance of a stone, uh, in most cases, so maybe we've heard about these conflict diamonds. Maybe we've heard about the horrible things happening with the generals in Mozambique or in Myanmar with the jade mines or all these other places where um, the indigenous people are, are subjected to some pretty brutal atrocities in the name of gems. And we start to think about, well, I wonder what the rest of the crystal healing market is like. And we, a few years ago, there was this really um, poignant piece um, that was that that came out through like conventional media outlets about kind of the dark side of the crystal healing industry, and it really focused on some of the uh, conditions of miners in Madagascar. And um, the the example they kept coming to time and time again was rose quartz because that was what the journalist uncovered and followed the most. And I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty grim 
not to sugarcoat that. But we have to remember that these are singular examples. Um, the rock and mineral industry has been going on since the beginning of time, since the beginning of commerce, since the beginning of trade. We have evidence of gemstones being traded across great distances for huge expenses, also at the risk of life and limb since the dawn of time. So there's nothing here that is new, but there's also nothing here that we should ignore just because it's old. And I think the growing popularity and the idea of an ethically sourced stone is because enough people have realized other sectors of the market matter. And if we want to walk our talk and be these highly evolved spiritual people, then we gotta look at our own practice, which is sometimes hard. You, you, you look at a beautiful object, you know, I pick up this beautiful barite from Morocco and I don't really know how it got to me in this particular instance. I, I, I don't know who minded at what time of year, under what conditions, how much they were paid. Um, but it's it's a lovely object that I have in in my possession. It is a spiritual tool that I use for the betterment of myself and my clients and my students. And I would like to think that all of that is fine on its own. But there are still other ripples being cast by by these stones. And it's it's time at least to have uncomfortable conversations about what those ripples look like, even if we don't have all the answers. I think it's really good to open the door. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And I think, you know, one thing that you have kind of brought up a little bit that I want to harken back to is this idea that perhaps at least part of the reason this has become so important to so many of us is because it almost feels in opposition to the beliefs that many of us hold spiritually. If we believe in compassion, if we believe in non-harm, if we believe in stewarding the earth and and in oneness and connection and taking care of one another as part of this human collective, then it seems that some of these atrocities obviously are in direct opposition to that. And it's it's it is a painful question to examine how can these two things coexist and fit together as part of the sphere of human experience, right? Because you don't have that beautiful barite without that. And, and I think realizing that ultimately, always, whenever we're talking about a case of extraction, there is a cost somewhere. There is a cost somewhere. And so let's dig into what makes a mineral ethical, because I'm going to tell you, I have a bit of a pet peeve right now. Um, with this term ethical it's, it's well it's not with the term it's with the the way that the term is being used because i cannot tell you how many you know i'm on instagram a lot <laughs> i cannot tell you how many crystal shops pop up in my feed and i go to their page and the first thing it says is 100% ethically sourced minerals it is so misleading it is so inaccurate um especially when i quite frequently see some of the stuff that's on those pages and I know where it's from and I know there's no, there's no way. Um, so I want to know, we are talking about this a little bit, but what in your eyes classifies a mineral as ethical? What should we strive for? So let's start with an example of something we can guarantee is entirely ethically sourced. Something that I know I have total agency over. I go to a place in nature I find a stone 
And it is a place where I am legally and morally allowed to pick up the stone. I pick it up myself and um, I haven't left much of a carbon footprint. I, I haven't disrupted too much of the environment with my presence there. Although, you know, I've stepped on blades of grass, I've broken twigs. There, there are still ripples. Um, I bring that stone home, I clean it lovingly and I put it in my toolbox. That stone is probably as close to 100% ethically sourced as anything can be. And everything else has, has a bigger footprint than that because there, uh, I, I was listening once to an interview that Sabrina Scott, she's the author of a book called Witch Body did. Um, and she was talking about her vegetarianism and uh, the, the interviewer kind of made the assumption that maybe that had something to do with ethics or morals and it was entirely like a dietary need for her. And she said, and I'll, I'll, I'll butcher this quote, but uh, I'll paraphrase that. She said that there is nothing without violence. Even, even being a vegetarian, even consuming only plants means that organisms sacrifice their lives and their well-being to feed us. So with any stone we pick up, there is, there is some level of maybe violence is not the word we want to use because it would require us to anthropomorphize things that are not sentient in the same way that we are. Um, their, their spirits are different. Their, their quote-unquote life cycles are different, but um, we have to disrupt something to to end up with that tool. So I think when we are talking about the parameters of an ethically sourced stone in a more practical sense than only what you can pick up reasonably, we have to look at um, what, what technology and practices were used to get it out of the earth. Were we cautious and conscientious about the environment and the footprint we're leaving there? What about the conditions of the human beings operating said equipment? Uh, you can have, you know, low low invasive techniques like just gentle hand mining and digging by hand you don't have a huge carbon footprint that way but are those workers in safe and sound conditions um are are they dying of cavens are they you know being pinned under heavy rocks are they coming home exhausted and unable to do anything else with their lives their their emotional well-being is certainly a part of this um how how much has the stone traveled to get to you there is an ethics in the amount of fossil fuels it requires to ship rocks around the world, which is done every year to go from point of origin to point of lapidary work to point of distribution at, at trade shows until they finally make their way into retail stores and in our hands. I mean, you get something that's maybe um, mined somewhere in North America, sent to South Africa or India or Indonesia for lapidary work, then you know maybe bought and sold by the barrowful in, in China and then brought back into North America at trade shows like Tucson or Denver when, you know, we could have just brought it there in the first place ourselves. But the, the value of human labor is so different in a white Western civilization than it is in other parts of the world. And it's, it's hard to have this conversation about ethics without also looking at the role of like white supremacy and, um, all these other kind of like white focused and white centered things that, that give us this capitalist ability to go out and buy the best rock for the best price. And I'm not condemning anyone for existing in a capitalist society and surviving and thriving even in a capitalist society. But we have to remember that those things, they enact a form of violence. There's just no way around it. Um, and of course, you know, is the stone being uh, bought, sold, distributed, traded in a way that is contributing to magnifying um, glorifying human conflict, um, our, our, you know, children 
being forced to mine things like the mica in our jewelry. I mean, there's, the list just goes on and on. But, you know, what is the environment? What is the role of the workers? How big is the carbon footprint? And at the end of the day, what does the marketing look like? Because there is an ethics to the marketing and the naming of stones that that intentionally obfuscates a lot of these steps. So they're all factors, but there's no single checklist that says this stone was ethically sourced unless you know the entire story. And in all honesty, 99.99% of the time, we don't. We don't. Because like everything through capitalism, the process has been created on such a large scale now everything is done on such a large scale that the mineral market is huge and like you said you might have a crystal that could have been mined 50 miles from where you live but it traveled 10,000 miles to get to you quite literally I mean this happens so you know and one of the other things we were discussing on Instagram is not just looking at these points that you mentioned so the environmental impact and ethics there. The workers' conditions, are they safe? Are they healthy? Um, The fair pay and wages for workers, was child labor used? All of these things, right? But all of those things throughout every step of the process, from the mining to the manufacturing to the sorting and transport and distribution of those minerals, Every single step of the way, those questions have to be answered. And sometimes we have some of those answers and not others. Um, And it is a difficult conversation to have, but I think it also makes us conscious of our consumption. At least I can say that for myself. I used to, I think, be a lot more um, apt to consumerist tendencies of just like buying what I wanted whenever I wanted in a very white centric Western capitalist kind of a way. And I think that having these questions to reflect on and understand that, like you said, every part of this process, there is a cost and in, in some way, there is going to be violence. There's going to be violence in this. And so like, where do we go from here? How do we as conscious consumers or as conscious business owners, um, as conscious healers, teachers, spiritual practitioners, how do we make the best, most sound decisions that we can when it comes to our role in this and how important is this really that we, that we do this? Yeah. Um, I think I want to work backwards here because there's a really good talking point. I think about our role and how big it plays in the global market of this. Um, crystals are huge. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, rocks and minerals have been a thing for a long time. They're, they're becoming more investable, especially in high end specimens. And so, um, that's that's something that we will only ever see increase. But the percentage of all mining and, and extraction that this represents is teeny tiny. It is infinitesimally small. And as, as a general rule of thumb, most of the industrial mining that is done for the rocks and minerals that end up on the crystal healing market are either done in 
fairly small yield um, standard. I mean, we'll say average safety, average pay, you know, not, not big extremes of this, or they are byproducts of more important commercially mining industries. Um, let's, let's look at the Democratic Republic of the Congo as a great example, where all this beautiful malachite and shatakite and chrysocolla and cornetite and, you know, all the other ites uh, are coming from. Um, the cobaltwin calcites and cobaltwin dolomites. Uh, a lot of this stuff is found in the way of what industrial mining is really trying to do. Get at things like cobalt and nickel and valuable ore minerals that can be uh, refined to extract these really valuable metals to produce the devices that you and I are communicating with and that all of our listeners are, are streaming and watching and tuning in on. And I, I think we have to take a step back and go, okay, this device, obviously it, it didn't grow on a tree. So if it wasn't grown, it was mined. All the components in it are inorganic in nature. They, they were mined. So what kind of impact did this device have? And honestly, I can say without a doubt, my iPhone produces more violence against the earth and humankind than just about any rock in my collection. That, that doesn't necessarily help me sleep at night because I still own the cell phone. But when I stop and go, where is the greatest harm being done? It's not my rose quartz. It isn't that beautiful piece of barrett I had. It isn't even like my really precious gems like emerald. It's in my devices. So if those miners are given the opportunity to dig all that beautiful malachite out of the way, to go in for you know the, the raw metals and ores and things that are much more important, and then we have a pile of tailings just sitting around, polluting the earth, why not sell those? Why not bring them to the lapidary trade? Why not bring them to the market where these miners who are quite, quite honestly not getting paid what they're worth to get the cobalt ores and the tantalum and the other great stuff? Um, I, I would love to live in a world where they were in safe conditions and getting paid fairly. But the reality is they're not. If they can supplement that with the cutting, selling, polishing, distributing of malachite and other things that are that are right there on in situ, I want them to do that. I want to support that industry. I want to hope that that part of it, that arm of it is doing better. And you know, there there aren't a lot of people I buy malachite from, me personally, uh, especially at the wholesale level. I, I go to people where like I I I know what kind of relationship they have. My favorite um, malachite vendor, his family is from the Congo. He's from the Congo. When I buy rocks from him. He can tell me exactly where they came from, the name of the mine, even if, if the shaft has a name or at least the relationship it's got to the geography of the area. And I, I understand that because he has that literal familial kinship with the people doing that labor, they're getting paid fairly. And I'll spend more to do that. So I will. But as far as like, what is our responsibility? Our responsibility absolutely is to improve the crystal healing market. But ultimately, that's small potatoes compared to where real mining and extraction damage is being done at the environmental and the social level. So um, yes, improve the mining of rose quartz. Improve the mining of amethyst and malachite and barite and celestite. But let's, let's improve the big industrial complexes that are exploiting human labor to produce the stuff we need in our devices and the stuff we need in our automobiles and the stuff we need for um, weapons. Uh, I mean, really, do we need to keep mining uranium and, and stuff? 
I, I think it is absolutely in my cards to do the best I can with my, my crystals that I use in my healing practice. But I also think it's in my cards to shine a light on how it's just a small piece of the puzzle. Thank you so much for bringing this up because I think this is something that most people don't even realize or recognize. I think they, that most lay people, right, think that if if malachite is being sold on the mineral market, that that is that is the goal in mind with the mining process with everything. And ninety eight percent of what we probably have in the crystal market is, as you said, a byproduct a seconds kind of pick through because frankly, again, operating within capitalism, that stuff isn't where the money is. It's in Mm -hmm. the ore. It's in those raw materials that go into everything else. Um, and, And I think one thing that you said that is so important to recognize also, and I really want it to sink in for people is how small the crystal and gem market is out of the whole mining industry, right? So we have all those ores and raw materials that are going into things, like you said, electronics and devices, cosmetics. We talked about quite a bit. You mentioned the um, mining of mica. And it, I mean, really, if you want to deep dive into this stuff, go look that up because you, you will likely learn a lot if you're not familiar with that already. And these are all parts of one huge, huge, huge global complex um, that is so deeply intertwined. And as Nicholas said, if we can take some of those, those crystals that otherwise would were for a long time until um, people realized there was some value, right? Again, because this is capitalist driven. Often those minerals were just sitting in a heap, sitting in a pile. They were too difficult to work with. But we as humans have decided that they have value. There is value in them. So now it's part of this whole big machine that is the mining industry. And so I think it's so interesting to look at our responsibility. Yes, through that lens of what we are contributing to crystal healing and to this very small niche, but in a much bigger way through a much wider lens and seeing all the ways that this impacts our world. And so Nicholas, thank you so much for, I think, really breaking that down because that is something that, I I mean, even when I was into crystals, when I was a kid and a teenager, I knew about mining from reading, you know, my, my Smithsonian guides and my things like that. Um, really understood that there, there is a complex relationship there. But in my mind, still for many years as a kid, I thought these things were like separate. I thought like, oh, you mine for ore and you do these things. And sometimes those things also happen to be crystals, you know, um, silver and copper and things like that. But very much these two are intertwined and they, they can't be separated from one another. Um, And hopefully, hopefully, the more of us that are examining this, that are asking questions, that are putting pressure where we need to put pressure um, in this secondary mineral market, my hope 
is that somehow that ripple will extend into the the greater practice of mining and how and how it's done in our world and and I don't know if that will happen and I don't know when that will happen or again if I think is the bigger piece of that puzzle but but I'd like to think that at some point it's possible but also like you mentioned Nicholas this is such an old old industry and largely it's been done the same way for a very long time, for a very long time. There might be new advances in technology. There might be new pockets and new uses for some of these materials. But largely the industry as a whole, I don't think has changed much in the thousands of years that, that we've been extracting minerals from the earth. So I do like what you said about at least we, it's almost like we give these minerals purpose. And if there is going to be this secondary um, market of these minerals that have been extracted as byproducts, if we can work with them for our own growth and work with them for healing of ourselves and of others and really examine how this fits into part of our spiritual practice, part of our, um, way of tapping in and connecting with the earth is is it a good thing is it a bad thing is it is it just something that exists where we just like everything we have to take it for what it is there there are pros and cons there are pieces that um are benefiting the earth and pieces that are not i mean what do you feel ultimately how do I want to phrase this? What do you feel ultimately? Um, because I know there are, there. okay, let me say it this way. There are people watching and listening right now that are wondering, so what is the, what is the answer, right? What is the answer? So should I be working with crystals? Should I not be working with crystals? What is, what is the right answer? And, and let me pose that to you because this, I, <laughs> I know, <laughs> I'm really going to put you on the spot, but like, and I think it's, is there a right answer? This is the better question. Um, you know, like I said earlier, the only way I can know absolutely that the process is 100% ethical and sound is if I do it myself, or I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that someone is being transparent in the supply chain and the supply chain is very short. So the counterpoint to add to this little addendum that I think is necessary is nobody f- should feel shame for not knowing better. Nobody should feel guilt for being an, an unconscious consumer because we are mostly unconscious consumers. That's, that's what our system is predicated upon. Um, the, the less you know, the more you consume. Sometimes the more you know, the more you consume. I mean, I've never met a rock I didn't, that I read about and didn't instantly want. Uh, different kind of knowledge there, right? So, um, you know, the first piece is to... I think just be aware and share that awareness. That awareness sharing can come maybe in the form of asking questions. Um, I get these from time to time. Um, anyone who follows me closely enough probably knows I, I help manage a, a metaphysical cult bookstore here in Central Florida, and I get to and help with the name of that um, It's called Avalon. Yes. So. Um, I, I do occasionally and, and more frequently these days get asked about, you know, the ethics and the sourcing. And, you know, the truth is it's, it's complicated, like you and I have just discussed. 
and wherever possible, we will make the decision. Okay, well, here's this, here's this moonstone that we know was mined in Virginia. And we have lots of laws in North America, especially here in the US, that, that protect mining and the environment and workers' rights. And maybe they're not great laws, but they're more than you're going to find in other places. They're, they're more um, diligently composed. So, you know, given the choice between that and maybe some moonstone that all I know was it was tumbled in China, I'll choose the other stuff. I know its story. I, I, I can trace some of that. So part of it is like asking about provenance. This is something that mineral collectors, rockhounds really care about. And like our, our lovey, dovey, healy-feely, airy-fairy, woo-woo crowd has been less keen on unless there's something metaphysically special about provenance. Um, and again, saying all this without judgment, I was there too. Um, but rocks tell stories geologically. And the more we know about the geology of where it came from, in my practice at least, the more it informs the way I use that stone. So asking the provenance question can be twofold. Well, is this quartz from Arkansas? Is this quartz from um, you know, Sichuan province of China? Is it quartz from Australia? Uh, they're going to feel different. So it can be kind of thinly veiled as a an innocent question any consumer might want to know, but it starts the wheels turning of like, well, do you know what kind of conditions were like to bring it to us? Like the average metaphysical shop worker, store owner, anything is going to say, I bought it at a trade show. We buy them in bulk because that's how it's sold. But if we as consumers start kind of leaning on our retailers to think about these things gently, lovingly, um, and, uh, I would, I would hesitate to say maybe somewhat naively, like don't, don't pose it as, is this ethical? Because nobody knows. But if we start with a question of genuine curiosity, then they have genuine curiosity and they lean on their suppliers, genuine curiosity. And we, we start kind of this chain of like, people care about provenance. So we've got to start talking about it. And there are lots of instances in the metaphysical world where provenance is in, intentionally hidden very intentionally, either by changing the name or, or being vague about the origins of stuff. I, I love using the examples that you'll find in um, certain catalogs where they discuss how this material is found on a remote island in the Indian Ocean, or this can only be found on a, on a, a distant island off the coast of Africa. And the truth is, if you know that they're talking about in both of these descriptions, the same island, and that island is Madagascar, you can buy the same rock from someone who sells Madagascar minerals for like a tenth of the price, maybe even less. Um, you know, that's, that's part of our ethical consumption too. Disclosing provenance helps everybody because if we know something is from a place laden with conflict, maybe we'll decide whether or not we want to consume it. If we don't know that, we can't make that decision. Um, and then the other thing is like, there are ways we can consume minerals that don't constantly increase that, that footprint or those ripples. Um, old rock hounds sell, buy, and trade old collections. Uh, buy things from your own backyard in, in a metaphorical sense. I love North American rocks and minerals because the history of mining here is so rich and varied. And like the, the diversity we have in the United States of mineral species and rock formations and geological processes is like massive, not just because, I mean, there's a large land mass involved, but like we have so many different geological environments and processes that have produced such unique things. You go to like uh, Franklin, New Jersey, and it is the world's foremost site of fluorescent minerals, maybe only rivaled by Quebec. Like just the, the sheer amount of weird things that only occur there and nowhere else is incredible. You move to the Southwest, you've got an entirely different kind of minerals. You go to Hiddenite, North Carolina, and you have like 
incredible mineral diversity. It doesn't resemble any of those other things. So uh, by, by buying things that are historic, you know, they haven't been mined recently. Um, we're not putting new labor through into the, the process and we're not really increasing the carbon footprint with all the emissions from modern equipment. And it's got a story to it. I love an old rock that came from someone's collection. Even if I don't know the whole story, I get that little like yellowed label that goes with it. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, someone hand wrote this label in the 1960s um, when they dug it out of the earth and it's been carried with the stone for 60 years now. How cool is that? Um, so buying old stuff is, is a way that we can be relatively ethical. doesn't mean it was ethical back then, but we're not putting additional strain on the environment or on the human factor. Um, and, you know, of course, in the digital era, I can't tell you how many accounts I see and follow and, and experience on Instagram and other places of like little indie rock wrestlers going out and picking up rocks and then offering them for sale. And like, I can see what their environmental impact was. It was a hammer and a pickaxe that, that, that was the fancy equipment they used. So, um, you know, those are other ways looking for the small and independent stuff, look for small batches of rocks and minerals. Of course, in the conventional jewelry trade, there are also artisanal miners that are like a really, uh, increasing trend right now. And I'm not super well-versed in, we'll say the ins and outs of all of that, but there are some really great people who are spotlighting artisanal miners and paying artisanal miners, which are nearly always indigenous people, um, fair livable wages for what they're getting. I mean, their, their entire, um, gemstone trades built on it. Like Aquapraise is a great example. The, for the most part, the, the entire production is as ethical as any mining production can be. The, um, lapidary artists in that area at least are getting paid what they're worth um, and Yanni, the, the man who has brought this to market, has worked really hard against the big mining complexes to make this available in a way that supports people. Um, so we do the best we can with the tools we've got. And the only way we get better tools is by learning. And one of the ways we do that is by asking questions. So it comes right back down to, to ask questions. Without, I, I love what you said about asking specifically about provenance of minerals. <clears throat> Um, I too have very much found, you know, working with an amethyst from India is different than an amethyst from Brazil is different than an amethyst from Uruguay is different than an amethyst from uh, Madagascar. Like you're going to have these differences in energy, but further, there are places that you can do research online. If you Google, I can't remember the name of the website right now, um, but the United States government keeps a website uh, of places where, or industries, I should say, where child labor is used and mm -hmm. they break it out by industry. And so you can look up mining, you can look up a specific country, you can see if child labor is used in that industry, in that country, and let that help inform some of your decisions about purchasing as well. If you know, for example, that quite frequently child labor is used in many Madagascar mining operations, you can consciously choose to avoid those minerals if that's you know a step and extent you're willing to go to in terms of your research but you don't know if you don't know where your minerals came from and so asking that question of provenance is so important and I do want to touch on something because you've been talking a lot about this on Instagram and on TikTok as well by <laughs> Nicholas at the luminous pearl um, about <laughs> the very unethical practice of changing mineral names 
not disclosing locations or sometimes even not really disclosing what the material is, right? Just um, naming it something else. And anyone who is, who's in the, if you know, you know, we're going to say that if you know, you know, uh, and if you know about these, these mineral uh, catalogs that frequently um, do this, it is, it is a point of frustration for many reasons, right? Because like you said, sometimes this is intentionally disclosing for some reasons and sometimes for other reasons. I think quite frequently this plays into the to capitalism, right? Control of yeah. the market of this one material, popularizing it under a name where you can then only get it from mm-hmm. the person who owns the trademark or whatever it happens to be. Um, but there are, there are other reasons that people sometimes change the names and minerals, which aren't great either. And, and the, the company will say that is particularly um, fond of this practice of changing mineral names. I, I won't disclose the mineral cause I'll give it away, but the, there is a very amazing family uh, that works with, a particular village um, in Asia doing some mining for a specific material. And I know the family that runs this operation that brings these minerals to market. I know about the provenance of these minerals, but they go by a different name somewhere else for, like you said, Nicholas, often 10 times what they're sold for under their real mineral name, their mineralogical name. And it's so frustrating to me because I think of how much more money could have gone in the pockets of the people who are mining those minerals, who are, who are going through the process of bringing those minerals to market. And this is something that I, it's weird because I felt like maybe it was kind of dying down a little bit. I felt like it, it, there was this big spike you know, maybe six, seven, eight years ago with these mineral names. And then it it did kind of seem to mellow for a bit, but I think it's starting back up again. And um, you've been talking a lot about this and just trying to educate people on doing a little bit of research first before, if something seems really hyped up, if there's a Mm -hmm. lot of buzz about it, um, what are some of the things people should, should look for to try and educate themselves on that particular issue, this unethical practice of renaming minerals? How can we find if, if a mineral goes by another name? So, uh, you know, first and foremost, if if it sounds like metaf- metaphysical soup in its name, you know, um, uh, starbeam cosmic dustite, you know, we'll make up an example. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if we've just slapped ite or eam to the end of a, a, a word that's like a buzzword in metaphysics, chances are that's not the mineral's actual name. Uh, A really good resource for this is mindat.org, Mineral Database is what that's short for. And this is a bunch of, you know, old school scientists who curate this thing. And they are sometimes savage about some of these metaphysical names when you you type some of them in and you actually land on a page. Um, uh, (laughs) If it's one of those things where if you know, you know, so like, you you can almost like read the the humor between the words here um and that's that's a really great resource anytime you're not sure if you've got the name of a mineral correct mindat is a really great t- 
tool to use. It'll tell you if what you're typing in is a trade name or varietal of another species or or lots of other things. Plenty of things won't show up in Mindap because they're too new or they're too woo-woo and they haven't infiltrated, we'll say, the market enough yet. But I think that once market reaches enough saturation, usually um, places like Mindat and, and other other mineralogical things kind of respond. Um, and I have to, say to call it yeah. savage is super accurate, but also <clears throat> if, if you need to, um, if you ever have a, just a desire for some good, I won't call it gossip, but just a little bit of bashing. If you need to get a little nasty out of your system, it is a personal pure moment of joy for me to read through some of those forums sometimes oh, yes. <laughs> and watch people pick them apart. Like it, there is something, it's like a sick pleasure for me. I do really enjoy it. Oh yeah. I have a very dear friend who has been going toe to toe with these people for many years, genuinely wanting to educate herself. She's totally rooted in the metaphysical world. And she will ask these old school scientists, you know, well, okay, so here's this trade name. I know it's not this you know, here are some pictures. What can you tell me? And she can like take it like nobody's business. And I admire her, her, her willingness to do that, but also her perspicacity to, to look past like the, okay, I, this is not personal. This is not a personal attack. They're, they're sick of the practice of the way, same way I am, but we come at it from two different angles. So let's meet in the middle. And, and you find that in the forums as well. And that's, that's always exciting, but there's, there's a lot of snark. There's always snark. So yeah, I, I get pleasure from that as well. Um, so uh, well, when you see people making those connections and kind of meeting halfway and, and having some of the old school science geologist types be like, all right, I don't really get you, you crystal healing mm-hmm. people with your woo over there, but I appreciate you coming at this from a, I know this isn't, you know, Pleiadian Ascensionite. Right. What is it? You know, and, and being able to have a really cool conversation and breaking some things down and really learning a lot. Totally. It's, it's like my favorite thing in the world. I can woo with the best of the woo, but I love just sitting down and talking to like mineral people who have no interest in the woo. And, you know, the funny thing is the, the longer I do this, the, the more years I get under my belt, the more mystically inclined science people are to me. Um, they have such a profound awareness of and respect for the unknown. And at the end of the day, I think all spiritual practice leads us to the precipice of mystery and invites us to take that plunge. The tools we use, the language we, we frame it in is going to be different, but it is that willingness to dive into the heart of mystery that fuels our practice. And that is exactly what the scientific method is. And I, I have a, an, another very dear friend who is a proper geologist and a, a witch and druid, and she's, she's tackling these same kinds of topics in her own way, and she's amazing. Um, and to, to hear her talk about science and such, she, she recognizes that scientists themselves are a pretty um, superstitious bunch, that there's a very weird and wonderful kind of magic we'll say to to the scientific method and equipment and and everything else but also i don't think you can pursue any field and any field at all doesn't have to be science related without the passion and wonder that mystery evokes and those are the same things that drive authentic spiritual practice that willingness to be vulnerable and surrender 
is just marvelous. But the deal is you can't, you can't surrender to the unknown until you kind of ante up with what's known. And in this sort of renaming and reclassifying and rebranding of old rocks, it is very easy to get lost. And I think some of the best spiritual experiences I've ever had are with humble rocks, really, really ordinary things. Um, I always have flint nearby. Here's, here's some that I took from, oh, God knows where, um, <laughs> somewhere um, where I was ethically allowed to, probably a gravel parking lot in Glastonbury. Um, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but there's, there's this very ancient lineage of picking up a stone because it's charming to us and for no other reason than that personal connection. And if we can kind of recognize that our uh, metaphysical ites are, com are common, humble stones, then we can steep ourselves in that mystery. Also, we can probably buy them under their common, humble names for much less. Um, and that's, that's the part of this process that gets me by intentionally hiding provenance, by intentionally um, describing the composition of things, like you're, you're leading someone up to the list of things that make up the rock, but you're just not naming the rock. Like that's a conscious decision someone has made. Yes. And to get that far and stop is to pull the wool over someone's eyes. And I, the internet broke me one day when I saw a polished sphere of the most ubiquitous metamorphic rock in existence being sold for thousands of dollars, a four inch sphere. And like that, that was just, it wasn't that long ago. It was actually the start of these videos and just like something snapped. And it was like, this has always bothered me, but, but like, if this four inch sphere is worth this much money, then how much is a countertop worth made out of the same material? You, you could go and per square yard pay like, 150 maybe 300 dollars for really high-end material the same stuff maybe not from the same place but it's the same stuff so and literally uh, a, a ton like a literal ton of the material for this yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you know go visit your local shopping mall what are those tiles made out of that you're walking all over if it has columns or a facade you know what is the, I, I i once had a bank when i lived in a small town in central florida the front of it was made out of larva kite you know? I was going to say, we have a building in Madison. The front is made of larvakite and it's so beautiful. Right. Common rocks. I mean, this is just an igneous rock. It's a cyanite. It's, it's not like, you know, groundbreaking stuff. I mean, as metaphysical people, we appreciate a different kind of value in it. But imagine now that building material, that, that architectural material has, has an inherent value and that's reflected by the trade and fluctuations and availability and demand. Now, what if someone else comes along and says, I really like this stuff, but it's not moving as larvakite. I'm going to name it, um, you know, galactic blue spaceshipite. And, and instead of, you know, uh, $150 for a slab of it that's three feet by three feet, it's $150 for a piece the size of my fist. It's the same stone. It offers the same benefits. It's probably even dug out by the same human beings at the same time. But the artificial inflation of price is, is really detrimental. And the ripples that causes are problematic. Not every trade name is bad. Angelite is a really great example. If you go buy blue, compact, and hydrite as angelite, it's actually cheaper than 
the beautiful crystalline specimens of angelite you get from other parts of the world. So um, value and trade name are not always inherently linked, but it's the practice around it. Nobody's trying to... also a difference, right? And I want to distinguish this between a trade name and a trademarked name. Yes, absolutely. Which is Um, a big part of this issue. And um, a colleague of mine once went down the rabbit hole with a lot of these trademarked names. She actually wrote a little booklet that you can find on Amazon. Um, if that's appropriate, I can yeah. share. It's called Old Rocks, New Names by Christy Hugs. Um, she actually, yeah, she looked at databases with the U- U.S. trademark database, Canadian Intellectual Property Office database, and similar databases in the U.K. and Australia for a lot of these trademarked names. And she found that in more cases than not, the trademark was being used, the symbol was being used without the paperwork having been filed. So they're not even legally trademarked in some cases, which is a whole new kind of work. About 10 years ago, I did the same thing for one specific mineral that I was very <laughs> curious about. And I actually found the trademark filings with the trademark office, but it was marked as like a dead trademark because no one ever followed through on the filing. So <laughs> although it had been initially like, registered probably to keep other people from using it at the time that this particular mineral was really blowing up which was like Mm -hmm. i said about 10 years ago they there was never a follow-through on that but i still see the initial filers of this using the tm Mm -hmm. after the name all the time um so that's very interesting too and you know one thing that i love that you said that i just want everyone to really think about i really want this to sink in it's just the beauty in, in the common rocks that are around us. Because I think so often we get hung up on these things that, let's face it, are exquisitely beautiful, right? Yeah. Are stunningly beautiful. For thousands of years, humans have been attracted by like these amazingly colored things um, that, the, that are made by the earth. They still amaze me when I'm like, I can't believe the earth made this. It's, mm-hmm. you know, there's something awe-inspiring about that but there's also beauty and also healing and also connection to be found in the stones around us and how many of us can connect or think back to our first experience of maybe being a child and going for a walk and being enamored with a rock and maybe it was a piece of parking lot gravel maybe it was a landscaping rock maybe it was a smooth stone that you found in a stream but I think all of us who love rocks now in our adulthood have at least one vivid experience like that where we were just as taken with something we found maybe literally in our own backyard yeah So thank you for saying that, because I think we forget sometimes. We do. We we put things on pedestals that we view as exotic and other and different. And we take for granted our everyday scenery. But if we can look at the world through the beginner's mind, the eyes of a child with the heart of innocence, what part of our existence isn't magical? I mean, like we're talking to each other on screens Uh, with signals that float through the air and permeate all these things between us on a rock floating in space, orbiting a giant ball of gas in the sky. Like seriously, life is magical. I don't need a a mystery-ite to enhance the mystery. Like I, I can pick up an ordinary rock and have that experience, but it's 
It's the recognition of the otherness, the inherent sanctity of everything. And it's, it's so easy to exoticize. And that's rooted in white supremacy. It's rooted in the sort of racial and social injustices that we're seeing in the world. Um, but like, what, what about where you are right now? I guarantee there is rock underneath just about everyone's feet. If you're listening from the space station, I'm really sorry. Next time bring rocks with you so you can, you can be part of this. But seriously, like no part of our existence can be divorced from the geosphere, from, from the part of the earth that is geological in nature. And so many of our everyday resources are derived from it. And when we recognize the profundity of that, holy cow, like everything is crystalline. We're at least a couple of degrees of, setu- uh, of separation removed from all things crystalline. That to me opens new doors to my everyday practice. And it's like the picking up of the humble stone and going, all right, what is your lesson for me? What can we do together? What do you need from me? Mm. Not always, what can I get from this, but what can I give in this situation? And those are the kinds of questions that also make our practice more compassionate, that make us more willing to have the empathy and the sensitivity to make better buying decisions. I mean, sometimes the best buying decision is like, I see crystals in a storm, like I have to rescue you. I really have to, I hear you. (laughs) Um, and, And other days it's going, if I buy this thing in this consumer environment, it's gonna tell capitalism to put more of these things here. And I know without a doubt what kind of practices brought them. So I'm not buying this from a big box store. I'm not buying this in the mall. I'm not doing this. That's me. No guilt, shame, or blame for anyone else who's making a different decision. I, I control my own. So again, I don't want to have this conversation make people feel guilty for owning rocks. Like, please don't. Work with them. Work with the tools you've got. Make new friends along the way. It's such a complicated conversation. There's so much depth to this. And you have to have courage. You have to be brave enough to be uncomfortable to do this work. And it's, it's related to so much of the other work being done in the world. And it matters. We all matter. You matter. And your decisions matter. And small though they might feel, it does make a difference. Wow. So powerful, Nicholas. And on so many levels, everything that you've said today, I think is, is going to take hours and days and months to kind of ripple through each of us engaging in this dialogue and listening in on this conversation and realizing how many layers there are to this work and realizing that you know, there's our individual actions, there's our collective actions, there's um, the contribution to extraction, to consumerism, capitalism, white supremacy, all of these things that are hopefully, quite literally, being torn down, reconstructed, reimagined. And it does start with each of us. It does start with each of us. And I so appreciate the open discussion without the without blame, shame, nothing, just an open discussion and an opportunity for reflection and an opportunity for 
making the best decisions we each can, the best choices we each can. And um, I just thank you. I thank you so much. And, you know, I always learn so much from our conversations. You are you are my absolute favorite person to talk to about crystals. (laughs) Um, Likewise. Quite honestly, because I feel like we always, we always get to go a little bit deeper. We always get to kind of break things down and, and look at these layers. Um, And you have so many great opportunities for learning. I mentioned a few of your books earlier. I I highly recommend all of Nicholas's books. They're all on my bookshelf. Um, Seriously, so fantastic. If you want more of this kind of an opportunity to think about the mineral kingdom, then I highly recommend reading Nicholas's books. But Nicholas, you also teach some great classes. I know you just recently did a class about the barrels, um, Mm -hmm. particularly with a focus on emeralds, which I know is one of your favorites. But you have another class coming up. uh, When this airs, it should be in just a day or two. So I believe it's um, June 10th, right? Yes, I have a class called Gems of Abundance. It's all about crystals for wealth, success, and sovereignty. And, you know, more than just the capitalist definitions of those things, like finding way to have agency and support and defining success on your terms. So uh, that'll be the evening of June 10th. Recordings will be available for anyone who can't make it live. Um, They do have a couple of like, ongoing monthly things that I do every month. So there's a free Reiki share that I'll do. My next one will be June 12th. And then I have my next installment in the monolith series. Um, Right after barrel, the next one is going to be agate, which is a very mercurial stone and very common, very humble. Um, I myself just got some new agate from Utah that I'm excited to sit down and talk to or listen to as the case is probably going to be. And um, yeah, I just... It's so much fun getting together in these digital spaces. So I'm I'm grateful that one of the blessings of COVID has been a new kind of connection. Uh, low overhead. I don't have to pack up rocks and fly with them. Rocks are heavy. <laughs> Airlines are the worst. Um, so we've also lowered our carbon footprint. There we go. See? Woo-hoo. Ethical decisions. Um, because I can do this from the comfort of my home. Um, so I, I thank you for the opportunity to talk about that. And as always, thank you for having me here. Yeah. And tell us, Nicholas, where can people go to learn more about that class or register for any of your upcoming events? So uh, probably the most reliable place, visit me on social media. Uh, There'll be a link in my profile, uh, a link tree that'll take you to all of those things individually. Um, I I endeavor to have individual events listed on Facebook as well. So if you're a Facebooker, you can do that. And I do have a website, which is in need of a serious overhaul, but it's www.theluminouspearl.com. And if you don't see what you're looking for there, you can just shoot me a message via the contact form and I'll send anyone who wants individual links, but I'll, I'll make sure those are up and about for everyone. And we will, of course, have links to all of those places that you can stay connected with Nicholas over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. And again, Nicholas, thank you so much for the conversation, for the companionship. Um, It was great chatting with you today. Thank you. Well, that is it for my interview with the amazing Nicholas Pearson. Again, be sure to connect with him online. He always has the most amazing things to share. Just this morning, I was checking out um, on Instagram and he posted a video about um, Charoite. That was a really, really good video because there's been this kind of fake 
charoite on the market for quite a few years now that's actually a fluorite mixed with quartz. And I've definitely seen, you know, quite a number of places selling this, both retail shops as well as wholesale vendors and, and you know, selling it as charoite. And so um, Nicholas is always full of the most amazing information. And I really encourage you to give him a follow, stay connected, and definitely check out his books and workshops as well. The Crystal Healing Certification Program is coming soon. Want to know more? For info, free training, and to get on the list, go to crystalhealerschool.com. Well, I hope that you found a lot of value in today's show. And if you want more information about anything we discussed in this episode, you can learn more over on the website at loveandlightschool.com slash blog. And if you enjoyed the show today, the biggest compliment you can give me is to leave a quick rating and a review over at loveandlightschool.com slash iTunes. And today I'd like to give a shout out to Carrie, who says, calming and healing. I find these podcasts to be calming and centering. In a frenetic and stressful world, Ms. Levy is a voice of tranquility, explaining her approach to working with crystals and dispelling the misinformation that is out there. I enjoy these podcasts and hope you will too. Carrie, thank you so, so much for taking the time to leave that five-star rating and your very, very sweet review. I really appreciate it. So again, if you'd like to leave your own review and have it featured here on the show, head over to loveandlightschool.com slash iTunes. You can also find me at loveandlightschool.com slash listen for some of our top podcast episodes, recent episodes, and more. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Love and Light Live podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Levy, and I'll be back with you next time. Until then, crystal blessings. The Love and Light Live podcast is a production of the Love and Light School of Crystal Therapy. Connect with us online at loveandlightschool.com or on social at loveandlightschool. The content provided on or through our website or podcast makes no claims for specific or general health or health results and should not be used to examine, diagnose, or treat any medical condition, prescribe medications, make claims for specific or general healing or health results, or as a substitute for traditional medical treatment. For medical advice, you should consult a licensed healthcare specialist. For more information, please refer to the terms of use on our website at loveandlightschool.com.